lunch break on Wednesday, I went over to Devereaux with the hope of getting a little like midday surf while things are still quiet and all the students are gone, maybe a little empty, empty time in the water. I was a bit distracted, you know, I was just getting back into work, and my head was caught up with a thousand things I needed to do here, as well as trying to manage, like, my in-laws, my kids, and everybody, and they're trying to, you know, the kids aren't back in school yet, it's just this chaotic time before the routine has begun again, and I am excited for the routine <laughs> to begin again. That's one of the nice things about these Sundays, we are back here into that routine as I rounded the corner from the parking lot out toward Devereaux, I saw something really strange. Directly in front of me, about 30 yards away, there was an egret. It was a great egret. Those white Long, skinny birds with the yellow beak and black legs. You've probably seen them around. It was strange enough just to see this bird. You know, they really stand out. Whenever you see one, even at a distance, they really stand out. But what was really weird was that it was walking straight toward me. (laughs) It was walking straight toward me. Now, I'd seen... It, you know, it came out of the bushes first, and I thought it was weird it was walking towards me in the bushes, but then it, then it walked onto the road and continued walking. You know, it's so strange to see this. I'd seen, I've seen chickens and, you know, ducks in foreign countries, you know, walking with this kind of, uh, you know, laissez-faire approach, you know, (laughs) indifference to humanity, uh, just walking down the road. I've seen that before, but I've never seen any other birds behave like that, particularly not in kind of wild bird and certainly not an egret, which usually gets spooked when you're within 100 yards. And this thing, this bird did the thing uh, that a lot of birds do when they walk. You know that have you, the thing with their necks, where the like when they take a step, their neck goes out. <laughs> and it was try, it was going really slowly, so that it was it was like this, and then a delayed reaction, and the neck went. Oh. <laughs> it's really cute, but it can't, so it's going slowly, but it was coming still coming straight, straight for me. Uh, and the egret was dazzlingly white. You know, they're so amazingly white. I don't know how they stayed that white. It's crazy. But that whiteness somehow accentuated the clarity and the beauty of the day. The sky was just crystal blue. And, the, uh, you know, there's fresh green grass out off the, on the sides of the roads. You could see up the coast all the way to Goleta. You could see, I mean, to Gaviota. You could see all the mountains. You could see everything. See the, the detail on the island. It was absolutely gorgeous. Despite that beauty, because I was coming in from this anxious time, I was tempted to just kind of move along. I was so into this pace of just going through my day. But as I didn't. I stayed to watch this egret there in my wetsuit, all hot, <laughs> watching this egret. And, to, and the egret walked all the way up to within about 15 feet of me all, all along the road. And then it stepped off the road onto the, a little log that was beside the road. And as it did so, I could see its feet, which I'd never looked at, the feet of an egret before. I assumed that they looked like duck's feet or something, that they were wet. But no, they looked like... They look like three very skinny feet. 
the three skinny toes, very skinny toes, and then very skinny legs, which makes sense, very practical for the kind of life they, they have. Uh, but you could, I could see each toe curl around the log as they, as they stepped onto this log and then proceeded to walk, continue to walk toward me, now on the log beside the road. It was, it was the strangest, strangest thing. Eventually, we were about five or six feet apart, like, this, like Tony and I right here. And I got a really good look at this, at this egret. It was, it was miraculous. It was strange. It was supernatural. Instinctively, I wondered, what does this mean? But I quickly abandoned that simple reasoning and decided instead to stay aware and attentive and accept it for what it was. It was an epiphany. A moment of revelation in which I understood something that is always true. Epiphany. From the Greek epiphanian, to show or to reveal. Today, the Christian world celebrates the epiphany, as we talked about. This is, this is the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. And in and, and a lot of the church, particularly in the Orthodox church, entire congregations of vested people, people with fancy clothes on and banners and all sorts of other things, wade into icy waters to commemorate Jesus' baptism and to celebrate this day of epiphany. This year, instead of the story of Jesus' baptism, which we almost read, this year we read the story of the Magi. Now, remember, don't add your Magi to the nativity set at the beginning, right? Now is when they show up. Now is when they show up. Unlike, but unlike the shepherds, the Magi probably didn't show up at the, at the nativity scene, right? They were probably somewhere else. Mary probably found a little better location than, uh, than that little manger that we talked about. Uh, in any case, in Matthew's gospel, these Magi are particularly important. Matthew's gospel emphasizes Jesus as the Messiah to Israel, Right? It is the Jewish-centered gospel, which makes it all the more meaningful that these three individuals who are outside of that tradition show up and reveal and acknowledge Jesus' importance. They continue the narrative that through Abraham, the whole world will be saved. Notice that these folks arrive from the east, following the power of nature, following the supernatural feeling that they have. Meanwhile, Herod is in the west, deriving his power from Rome, further west. That power struggle underlies this entire narrative. Now, notice that there is no mention of gifts for Herod or for the religious professionals in Jerusalem who tell the Magi where the Messiah is to be born, right? 
They don't go, they go to these super powerful people and it would be customary to give them something, but they don't. These folks are outsiders, but they reserve their deference for the baby. So, who are these folks that arrive? First of all, we don't know that there were three, right? We like to say three wise men, of which none of those things we know to be true, uh, beyond wisdom. Uh, you know, they are not, they, we don't know that there are three. We only say three because there are three gifts. So we say three gifts, but we don't know that. We don't know that there are men, per, uh, particularly. It could have, it, this is just a plural noun, so it could have been all sorts of folks. Uh, we, we, there could have been a lot of visitors. Who knows what these folks were doing? But we know that they came, and we know that they weren't kings, right? We know that they were not kings. Uh, Matthew calls them magoi, a specific term in Greek whose etymology is on the hazy side. But the term magos was used in the Hellenistic world rather loosely for astrologers and magicians. Now, Herodotus, the historian, Greek historian, uh, does describe Magoi as a priestly caste from the Median region west of Persia. And they're somehow similar to Zoroastrian practitioners. If, you do, if you're not aware, Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism is one of the world's oldest active religions. It is the oldest monotheistic re- religion uh, still in practice. And worldwide, there are about 190,000 people who still practice this tradition. So this is not some obscure thing. We don't know specifically what the mag or how they were related to that tradition, but we know that they were. And so these people had looked to the natural world for signs. They studied astrology, and they kept detailed notes on the changes in the night sky because they were attuned to nature around them, because they were open to that supernatural mystery. They were able to see something that others were not. In Epiphany, we celebrate seeing what we have missed, a truth that is always there, but we have been unable to identify the truth of God with us. Im, anu, el. Im, with, anu, us, el, God. Emmanuel. That is what it means. Sometimes that revelation feels like a new light. It's funny how we, we often depict uh, uh, new ideas with, with a light bulb, you know? <laughs> this, this time of epiphany has had that kind of those, those connotations from, from the beginning. Uh, that's why we have some extra, extra lights up. These are not Christmas lights. These are epiphany lights. <laughs> but, but traditionally, this has been a time to celebrate the light among us. Um, and it is a time for fresh ideas, a fresh understanding. It's, a, it's particularly... Uh, uh, poignant in this time, a dark time of year. Uh, the great songwriter Townsend Zant sings a song that we have sung in here before, in which he mentions, he says, There ain't no dark until something shines, and I'm bound to leave this dark behind. There's that notion that we live into a, a certain way of being and that we are not always aware of what it is. So sometimes epiphany comes with new light, 
and new life with a baby. And other times, it comes with darkness and with death. It's important and worth noting, and we'll talk about it more in a second, with the mustard seed, but it's worth noting that both frankincense and myrrh are gifts that are appropriate in the preparation of death, the preparation of a body for burial. They are interesting gifts for a newborn. This is what Epiphany brings about. It is a time of transition, a time of change. In the last few days, I've been graced by this sort of epiphany. My maternal grandfather is facing the end of life. He's just gone into hospice today. Of the people in my grandparents' generation, no individual has had a greater impact on my life than Grandpa Kiskaden. He and my grandmother had a steady presence for my brother and I. As children, they frequently traveled from Detroit to visit us in central California. During the years of my parents' divorce, my brother and I spent the bulk of our summers in Detroit with them. They lived in Detroit because my grandfather was an engineer for Ford. He was born at home in Minneapolis to a large Swedish family. Um, His name is Malin Roger Kiskaden, and he is still a very smart man, even on his deathbed at 93. He was a singer and an actor in theater as a young man, but also interested in engineering. He was offered a full scholarship to Yale, but the additional living cost prevented him from becoming an Eli. So instead, he went to engineering school back in Minnesota until he became a pilot at the advent of World War II. He was a young flight instructor, and then he went on to fly multiple tours over Europe as piloting a B-29 bomber. Could you imagine this as a, you know, in your 20s? It's so funny. I always thought that, you know, as a kid, I just thought, oh, it's your grandpa. But... I mean, in your early 20s to be flying these sorts of things. When we were children, Grandpa never spoke of the war. Hushed adult voices told us that his had been the sole surviving plane in a sortie uh, over uh, over, uh, France. Grandpa never spoke of fighting, and he also never spoke uh, overtly about his faith. Instead, he embodied it. He was one of the first people that I ever saw that went out and volunteered. He spent a lot of his time serving others. When he, when he, uh, became, uh, when he uh, retired uh, at age 65, which is, I know it's the retirement age, but it seems young to me now. It seems old to me then, and now it seems incredibly young. But he was out and about always helping other people. He, they did, every day he worked for Meals on Wheels. You guys know that, that program? And that, was, that was a really important thing. But he also he did all sorts of public service. And he didn't, t- he didn't preach to us about it. He just, just went out and did it. And he would take us along to go do it. And it was so fun having that practical application of faith. Seeing people's desire to help others and to live out their life in service was, had a huge impact on me. All of these things that I mentioned, I already knew about Grandpa Kiskaden. They were not the epiphany. 
Rather, with his end of life rapidly approaching, the epiphany for me was the great gift of life. The opportunity to share this life together, to breathe the same air, to learn from one another, to love one another. In all of eternity, in this great expanding universe, we have the precious gift of life together, here and now. When I first saw that egret, I thought of my grandpa. I wondered if he had passed. I wondered if the Holy Spirit was telling me something. And maybe, maybe it was. But the beauty of the moment was how it turned my eyes to see the fullness of life through the eyes of a man lying in bed. Not unlike a newborn child awaiting eternal gifts. Amen.